Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 146, King Aethelbald, A Whirlpool of Perdition. All right, as you probably already know, we're doing a Christmas membership drive. This December, if you become a yearly member or renew your yearly membership, I'll send BHP swag to your door, including a new unseen goodie. Yep, stickers, buttons, and a mystery present all sent in an envelope licked by me. The BHP is growing and our servers are getting hammered. You might have noticed that the site has been slow and has even gone down from time to time. That's because there are a lot more new listeners, but there haven't been a lot of new members. Moving servers is expensive, and to keep the site up and to give the Viking Age, which is just around the corner, the attention it truly deserves, we need help from as many of you as possible. And if you have a friend or family who might like the show, why not sign them up for a gift membership? It's easy. Just sign up and then send me an email telling me who the membership is for, and I'll get it all sorted out. I'll even send a note wishing them a happy Saturnalia, or any holiday of your choice. So if you wouldn't mind, head on over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and sign up for a yearly membership. It really helps out the show a bunch. And thank you very much to Eric, Pepper, and Rosemary for signing up already. All right, this episode is a little bit of a strange one, and not just because of the subject. The first half of this episode is a combination of letting you know what's happening in the Heptarchy, basically chaos unless you're in Mercia, and it's also setting the stage for the second half, which, I'm not going to lie to you, is going to get a little weird. But stick with me. It's going to get good. When we last left off, King Aethelbald of Mercia was supreme in the south. Most of the rival kingdoms of Mercia had been dealing with internal issues and civil war, and in the vacuum, Aethelbald had led Mercia into becoming the dominant force in the south and possibly the most powerful kingdom in Britain. And as further reinforcement of his power, in 734, a new Archbishop of Canterbury needed to be selected, and Nothelm, a priest from Mercian-dominated London, was elected. So for those of you keeping count, this is the second Archbishop in a row to have Mercian connections. So things were continuing to go Aethelbald's way. But he wasn't about to rest on his laurels. Simply because he had an edge, and he had friendly people heading up the Sea of Canterbury, didn't mean that he should just take the church for granted. And so we're told on that same year, King Aethelbald issued some land to the church. And actually, I got my hands on some charters and letters, so in this episode, I'm going to read some of them to you. That way you can have a sense of what these arrangements were like. So here's an excerpt from the charter dated 734, where Aethelbald made a gift to the church. Quote, I, Aethelbald, king of the Mercians, announce by these present letters that I have given for my soul to Aidwulf, bishop of the church of the blessed apostle Andrew, which he governs, the entrance, i.e. the toll, of one ship, whether one of his own or of any other man, hitherto belonging to me or my predecessors by royal right in the port of London, just as he has asked our clemency. And in order that this donation be made firm and stable forever, so that nobody, kings or nobles or tax gatherers or any of their deputies whatsoever, may presume or be able to invalidate in part or wholly, I will make with my hand the sign of the cross below on this page, and will ask witnesses to subscribe. Whoever therefore shall permit what I have granted, or has been granted for my soul to remain unimpaired, 
may he have the blessed communion with all the present and future Church of Christ. But if anyone will not permit it, may he be cut off from the society, not only of holy men, but also of the angels. This is our donation, remaining nevertheless in its firmness. End quote. All right, first off, what he just said is that Bishop Aildwolf is getting the toll of one ship into the port of London. So again, we're seeing the level of control Ethelbald had over London. Further, he's saying that anyone who obeys this charter will be blessed, but anyone who violates it should be cast out of society and life, basically excommunicated, and also out of heaven in death. So that's a pretty hefty curse just for the toll of one ship. But there you have it. Now, this is the first charter that I've read to you, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. But the style of the writing here is remarkably different from much of the charters from this time and region. For example, other royal grants to Worcester, as well as the Esmera Diploma, which I'll read you a selection of in just a moment, were strikingly ecclesiastical in nature. Whereas this one is rather clerical, curses notwithstanding. And what that suggests is that Ethelbald was probably not using his own clerks, but rather, in keeping with the custom that was predominant until about the 10th century, the charters were the responsibility of the local bishop, or the abbot, or scribes. And as is the case throughout recorded history, writers and bureaucrats all have their own way of phrasing things, so we're seeing those differences here. Consequently, we're seeing further evidence that the king wasn't walking around with his own scribe, nor was he writing these things down himself, but rather, they were put together by others, and quite possibly, the very men who were receiving these royal gifts. And yes, I did just take time to describe how business transfers were drafted in the Middle Ages, and some of you might be thinking, why go into this level of detail? Well, first, I find it interesting because I'm a lawyer, but beyond that, it does become relevant later on. What we're seeing is evidence that Ethelbald was buttering up the church, and hopefully a few of you are beginning to wonder why he would be doing that, and we'll find out later in this episode. But to be honest, I probably would have included this information regardless, because I want you to have a real image of how this world worked. Before this episode, if I asked you how a king issued grants, Many of you would have probably talked about the king or the king's scribe drafting a charter and then signing it. So by talking about these things, we're adding detail to your image and giving you information that you usually wouldn't get unless you were in grad school for this subject. Also, I'm just kind of a nerd for this stuff. Anyway, so two years later, in 736, Ethelbald was at it again, and the church was receiving even more from him. Here's an excerpt, and if you listen closely, you might notice that the wording and style is quite different from the first one. This is the Ismera Diploma. Quote, I, Ethelbald, by the gift of God, king not only of the Mercians, but also of all the provinces which are called by the general name South English, for the relief of my soul and the remission of my sins, make over, liberally granting into ecclesiastical possession, to my venerable companion Chinnebert for the construction of a monastery, a small piece of land, namely ten hides, in the province to which was applied by the men of old the name Ismera, by the river called Stour, with all necessities belonging to it, with fields and woods, with fisheries and meadows." End quote. I won't read the whole thing to you because I think you're going to get bored, but suffice to say that the tone is strikingly religious and filled with extra language, what lawyers call obertus dicta. 
But the takeaway is that Ethelbald is giving 10 hides of land to Chinnabert. And beyond the question of what his motivations might have been for giving that much land, there's another aspect to this charter that catches my attention. Namely, how Ethelbald is addressed. Did you notice that? This charter is really important because unlike in the first charter, here we see that Ethelbald is listed not just as the King of Mercia, but King of the Southern English. Now that's quite interesting, but I don't want you to think that it was the result of a major change that took place between 734 and 736. In fact, I really don't think there was much of a change at all. And the reason why I say that is because when Bede finished his history, which was in 731, so five years earlier, it was already clear that Ethelbald was a major power in the South. So the difference between those charters might have had more to do with the fact that the scribes had different styles. But it's clear in Bede's history that by 731, Ethelbald was the preeminent power in the South. And here, in 736, we're seeing it reflected in his legal documents. Something else that you might have noticed is that this charter is basically a deed. As you might remember from earlier episodes, this is the era where bookland was becoming more popular. And this is an example of a bookland charter. Chinnabert was now holding the land. But not just that, he was entitled to leave the land to whoever he wished. It didn't revert back to the king. And later in the charter, it's made clear that if anyone violates it, they will be subject to a, quote, terrible judgment, end quote. So once again, Ethelbald was basically attaching a biblical curse to the deed in order to make the grant of land be a grant in perpetuity. The notion being that while the king makes the law, the Almighty has the final say on things. And while a king can overrule another king, no one can overrule the Almighty. So not even a king would dare violate this charter because it would expose him to divine retribution. Something else interesting about charters like this is that based upon their style, we're able to deduce where they came from. Specifically, they aren't like the old Roman charters like some of the Welsh charters were. So it's unlikely that they were left over from the Romano-British era. Nor are they like charters from Frankish Gaul. So they probably weren't developed due to Merovingian influence. But rather... They're pretty Italian in style. Specifically, they were like the charters that were in use during the tenure of Pope Gregory and St. Augustine, which suggests that they were introduced in the early conversion era, and that the style was still being utilized over a hundred years later. So St. Augustine might have been a grumpy old man, but you cannot deny that he had one hell of an impact upon England. Anyway, interesting cultural tidbits aside, what we're seeing here is that King Ethelbald, much like the children of Penda, was cultivating a friendly relationship with the church, and was also emphasizing his status as the overking of southern England. He might have also been worried about his sins, since part of the transfer deal was that this was for the remission of his sins. So that's what's going on in Mercia. Meanwhile, in northern England, things were still a bit of a mess. The following year, so 737, we're told that King Cholwulf of Northumbria, that was the same king who was deposed, forcibly tonsured, and then rescued from Lindisfarne and put back on the throne. Well, it looks like the throne wasn't suiting him very well, because we're told that on that year, King Cholwulf went right back into the monastery. Now, why would he do that? Well, the records aren't entirely clear. 
so he might have been forced back in there, just like he was the first time. But given the tone of the record and the way the event played out, it looks like he also might have just gone in there voluntarily. Perhaps he realized that his reign was destined to be troubled, given how many rivals there were in Northumbria, and he just didn't have the energy to keep on fighting. Or maybe he had an experience when he was forcibly tonsured, and he realized that his life needed a change. There are all sorts of reasons why this might have happened. But whatever the case, we're told that King Cholwulf of Northumbria became Brother Cholwulf for the second time. And Aidbert, a man from a different and distant branch of the line of Ida, took the throne. So, the party continues in the north. Two years later in Wessex, we're told that King Aethelherd of Wessex died. It's not clear how or why he died, but I do wonder if he was sick. I raise that possibility because the Chronicle mentions that his wife, Frithugith, and how did that name ever go out of style? Anyway, so Queen Frithugith went on pilgrimage to Rome a couple years earlier, and I wonder if she might have been seeking divine assistance for her husband. It's an idle musing, but the timing is rather interesting. Anyway, whatever the case, Ethelherd died without a son, and so his brother, Cuthred, took the throne. And Wessex, under King Cuthred, continued to be subject to Mercian domination. So, things were still going well for Mercia. A bit to the east in Kent, we find that Archbishop Nothelm died on the 17th of October, 739. And despite being an archbishop for only four years, he was revered as a saint and had his own feast day. But you know, that had to suck for Ethelwald. I doubt it was easy to place a friendly member of the clergy in the Archbishopric of Canterbury. And while he appears to have managed to pull it off twice, each of his archbishops had frustratingly short lifespans once they took the position. But never fear, there were always others. And in the following year, 740, we're told that Cuthbert, the former bishop of Hereford, was elected to the Archbishopric of Canterbury. This is the third archbishop in a row to have mercy in ties. Ethelbald has managed to pull off the trifecta. And then, at last, we get some news of something that actually involves Mercia. Have you noticed how much we have to rely on looking at records of other kingdoms or entities to get an idea of what was going on in Mercia? Well, no longer. And we're told that in 743, Ethelbald of Mercia and Cuthred of Wessex joined together and fought the Britons. Why? Well, we don't know. Who fought on the side of the Britons? We don't know that either. Also, we don't even know if this was a real alliance. Joining up to fight the Brits might seem like the sort of thing that English kingdoms would do for the hell of it, but this very well might have been less of an alliance and more along the lines of a command, with the West Saxons being ordered to join the Mercians in war. But whatever the case, while we don't have many written records regarding what was going on in Mercia, it does seem that Mercia was throwing a few elbows, in addition to all the political maneuvering they were doing. Then, things get really interesting for us in 746. I'm not going to lie to you. This is one of the stories that I've been dying to tell you about since I first started this project. And the best part of it is that it will give you a solid illustration of many of the things we've been talking about in the cultural episodes. So, in 746, Boniface wrote a letter he sent the letter to the Archbishop of York and asked him to amend it as he saw fit. But the letter itself wasn't intended for Archbishop Egbert. It was for King Aethelbald. 
However, Boniface knew that the king was illiterate, and so he would need someone to read it for him and explain it. Boniface didn't want to send a stranger to do this task. He clearly felt that it was imperative that the king be as open to the letter as possible. So he wrote to Herefrith, a priest who was in good standing with King Aethelbald, and he asked him to read the letter to the king and explain it when necessary. So we have a saint writing a letter, and then we have an archbishop proofreading it, and then we have a friendly priest of the king read it out loud. This was a full court press. So what's the issue? Well, it turns out that Boniface was hearing of some rather shockingly sinful behaviors on the part of King Aethelbald. And this was an era when the church found its rights rapidly curtailed, and Bede complained of the same thing, tracing the beginnings to the reign of King Osred of Northumbria. But things really seemed to be hitting a fever pitch in Mercia, and Boniface was hoping to reform the king. And for good reason. The things that he was up to were not making him any friends, and the letter itself raises the possibility that the king's life might be in danger both because of how it offended the church, but also because of how it offended others in the kingdom. So what was he up to? Well, I'll let St. Boniface fill you in, and I'm reading you an excerpt from the middle of his letter. He begins rather politely, saying quite kind things about the king, including how much he appreciates the gifts that Aethelbald has given the church, and how he hopes that his reign will be a long and successful one. And then he gets down to business. Quote, but among these things that have reached our ears is a report of an evil kind concerning your excellency's way of life. And we were greatly grieved when we heard it, and we wish that it were not true. For it has been disclosed to us from the account of many persons that you have never taken in matrimony a lawful wife. This was ordained by the Lord God from the very beginning of the world, as is also enjoined and repeated by Paul, God's apostle, who teaches and says, but for fear of fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Now, if you desire to do this for the sake of chastity and abstinence, so that out of fear and love of God you abstain from union with a wife, and you prove it true and undertaken for God's sake, in this also we rejoice, for this is not reprehensible, but on the contrary, laudable. If, however, which God forbid, you have, as many say, neither taken lawful wife nor maintained chaste abstinence for God's sake, but governed by lust have stained the fame of your glory before God and men by the sin of lasciviousness and adultery, we are extremely grieved by this, for it is regarded as both the disgrace in the sight of God and the ruin of your reputation among men. And yet, what is worse, those who tell us this, add to this shameful crime, is especially committed in the monasteries with holy nuns and virgins, consecrated to God. For there is no doubt this is doubly a sin. To give an illustration, to what punishment is a servant liable from his master if he violates his master's wife in adultery? How much more he who defies with the filth of his lust the bride of Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, as the blessed apostle Paul says, know you not that your members are the temple of the Holy Ghost? And elsewhere, know you not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you? But if any man violate the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which you are. 
and again in his accounting, numbering the sins he adjoins adulterers and fornicators to the servitude of idolatry, saying, Know you not that the unjust shall not possess the kingdom of God? Do not err, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor liars with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor extortioners shall possess the kingdom of God. Indeed, among the Greeks and the Romans, as if the man guilty of this crime has committed blasphemy against God, we find that if a candidate before ordination, being specifically asked about this sin, were discovered guilty of intercourse with a nun veiled and consecrated to God, he was disbarred from all orders of God's priesthood. On this account, most dear son, one should most carefully consider how heavy this sin is judged to be in the eyes of the eternal judge when it places the doer among the slaves of idolatry and prohibits him from divine service at the altar, although he may have previously done penance and been reconciled with God. For bodies, consecrated to God through vow of our own response and through the words of the priest, are said by Holy Scripture to be temples of God, and thus violators of them are regarded according to the apostle as the sons of perdition. But Peter, the prince of the apostles, forbidding lust to the voluptuous, said, For the time past is sufficient, etc. Then it said, For the price of a harlot is scarce one loaf, but the woman catcheth the precious soul of a man. And elsewhere, The fault is not so great when a man hath stolen, for he stealeth to fill his hungry soul. And if he be taken, he shall restore sevenfold. But if he is an adulterer, Enumerate how many spiritual physicians have denounced the fearful poison of this sin and laid a terrible ban on it. For almost is fornication graver and lower than all sins, and it truthfully can be called the snare of death and the pit of hell and the whirlpool of perdition. End quote. Kind of feels like Gildas, doesn't it? And did you follow what he was saying? He's accused the bachelor king of having sex with nuns, and we'll get to that in a minute. And then he quotes a bunch from the Bible, and basically he's offering biblical precedent for his argument that fornicating with nuns is essentially like committing adultery. And then he points out that adultery is so bad that it disqualifies you for the priesthood, even if you've been forgiven in confession. He also tossed out some rather weird stuff about how you can get a hooker for a loaf of bread, but she will steal your soul, and how the Holy Ghost lives in your member or something. Then, just in case the king didn't buy the idea that fornication was the same as adultery, he pointed out that it was like violating a temple, which is pretty bad, and how being a fornicator is like being effeminate. And if you remember back to the gender episode, that leap might make a little bit more sense, because back then, acting in a sexual manner was seen as distinctly feminine. So sleeping around was probably downright girly in Boniface's eyes. But then he went for the knockout blow and spoke of fornication as the snare of death and how it was, quote, graver and lower than all sins, end quote, or at least almost. So wait, having sex out of wedlock is graver and lower than murder? You know, I think Bonnie might be overselling his point here. But he didn't stop there either. And it goes from a sort of liturgical legal argument, and one that I think you can follow even if you don't necessarily agree with it, to something that's downright weird. And he writes about how pagans in Old Saxony punish female adulterers by scourging the skin of the women with weapons and sticks. 
and then hanging them. And he also speaks about how women in the Wendish culture would throw themselves on their husband's funeral pyre. And here's the best part. He points to these as examples of how marriage is even respected by pagans. So we have scourging, executions, and suicide. You know, marriage. And then he turns around and says that Ethelbald needs to stop fornicating because he's leading his people into the pit of death. That is literally what Boniface says Ethelbald is doing. And then he speaks of his fear that it will lead to a race of degenerate people because those born out of wedlock are apparently different and that they will be, quote, raging with lust, end quote, and that the English will no longer be strong in, quote, secular warfare, end quote, just like what happened in Spain, Burgundy and Provence. Seriously, he claims that this will lead to a new race of people who are horny all the time and suck at fighting, just like those damn Spaniards. But Bonnie saved the most important part for the end. What he was really bothered about is that Ethelbald had, quote, stolen from them certain revenues, end quote. It always comes down to money. Further, apparently his elder men and other members of his court, quote, offer greater violence and oppression to monks and priests than other Christian kings have done before, end quote. And he writes about how much the church was untouched in England from the time of the conversion all the way until King Cholred of Mercia and King Osred of Northumbria. So obviously he's complaining about how the church's rights were being violated. But did you catch what else he was saying? He was comparing Ethelbald to his loony predecessor and the similarly awful king of Northumbria. And then he goes so far as to remind Ethelbald of how King Osred was a fornicating madman who died a young death after sleeping with nuns. Yep, him too. So, that's the letter. And it's rather surprising. The fact that a king would run around and have mistresses all over his kingdom isn't too shocking. But the fact that he's specifically going after nuns makes this sound more like a low-budget porn than a historical account. And assuming that it's true, why would Ethelbald do this? Well, here's where all that cultural stuff starts to pay off dividends. Because the first thing that most people would jump to if they heard this story was that Ethelbald was just a bit of a perv. But that's actually a very simplistic view and probably rather inaccurate as well. And I'm guessing you probably have a solid guess as to why Ethelbald was going from nunnery to nunnery and absconding with cloistered women. But if you haven't figured it out, let's give you a few hints. The first hint is that you might have noticed that there's no indication by Boniface that the king was taking these nuns by force. The second hint is that we're just over a hundred years from the conversion and we've seen a dramatic rise in monasticism in religious houses in England. The church has become incredibly powerful in England, almost acting as an overarching government in many regards. And that meant that abbesses, bishops, and other religious figures were beginning to exercise quite a bit of power on the island. And as you might remember, by this point in history, the nobility had taken notice of that and began stacking the religious houses with members of their own families. How about one more hint? In one of the members' episodes focusing upon the women of Mercia, I pointed out that many of the kings of Mercia were very careful to marry the daughters of powerful Mercian families. There appeared to be something going on in Mercian culture that required not just a strong claim from the king, but also the queen needed to be from a prestigious line. And in many cases, it was preferable to be from the line of Penda. 
And seriously, the daughters and granddaughters and great-granddaughters of Penda seem to be legion. So, with all that in mind, have you figured out why Ethelbald might have been doing this? Well, first off, he was a person and probably wanted human contact. And he wasn't alone in that. Many of the women in these nunneries were not given a choice before being cloistered. So at least some of them must have been a bit lonely and dying to get out. So this might have been an attempt to kill two birds with a few dozen nuns. But chances are, this wasn't just about his need to be with a woman, but also his desire to avoid the pitfalls of some of his predecessors. Now, naturally, we don't have any diaries, so this is only a theory, but it is one that has quite a bit of merit. And the thought is that Ethelbald was trying to solidify his hold on power by tying himself to powerful families, while also ensuring that his line didn't die out. And in doing it in this manner, he was also avoiding the possibility of having to share his rule with a noble queen. If you don't marry the girl, she's not queen. And queens of Mercia did exercise quite a bit of power, and in some cases were treasonous and downright deadly. And he had all these willing nuns. But one of the many issues with this plan was the fact that their sexuality wasn't theirs. It belonged to their families and to the abbesses, and to the bishops. So even if they were willing, it wasn't theirs to give. So the thought is that Ethelbald might have been trying a new method of dynastic politics. He was an innovator. However, you could also describe the guy who invented the Floby as an innovator, so there is always that. And it turns out that Ethelbald's plan was even less effective than putting an electric razor on a vacuum cleaner and calling it a grooming device. Because rather than solidifying his hold on power and tying his reign to other powerful families in Mercia, he was just pissing off everyone in his kingdom, and even the church. They wanted Ethelbald to marry. But he had other ideas. And we'll see how that shakes out next time. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. 